This is the voice of the Report of the Week, signing on. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone listening. This is VORW International, the voice of the Report of the Week. Thank you for tuning in this Thursday, the 13th of June, 2019. You can be listening to this on a wide variety of online platforms, as well as on the shortwave, 7780 and 5850 kHz. So this is my weekly podcast where we really just share miscellaneous thoughts and discussions on a wide variety of topics and issues. In today's program, we will be getting to your travel-related stories. We also have the question of the show, which will be coming up later. And then we have a good mixture of your listener-suggested topics. I also have a few thoughts of my own to impart upon you all in today's broadcast. I hope you can stay tuned. First off, any questions, comments, feedback, reception reports, and topic suggestions are always welcome. You can send me an email to vorwinfo at gmail.com. That address will be repeated many times throughout the broadcast. So we are working our way into mid-June of 2019, and uh, getting into a, uh, you know, well, in my opinion, anyway, we are well into our... Favorite time of year. I always like this time of year. It's it's just, it's great. I, you know, I'm just a fan of it. It's funny, there always was a time. There was, there was a time when I preferred the colder weather. I know, that's just what I was, I was a fan of. I liked the colder weather, but those, those days are over. Now I'm a fan of the warmer weather. And uh, this is, this is as good as it gets. Temperature-wise, it's comfortable, there's a good deal of sunlight, weather is nice, and uh, cannot complain. Alright, first things first, I want to just get this out of the way immediately. You know how I do the radio-related talk here and there. Uh, I'm going to do that right now, and then the rest of the show... I mean, who knows, maybe a, maybe another radio-related tidbit will slip through, but I figure since there are people that do have an interest in shortwave and listen on this medium and so on, may as well bring it up. This is not good news, so I say that in advance. A major international shortwave broadcaster will be leaving the airwaves, so it seems. Uh, this is unfortunate, but... The newest station to go off the air will be All India Radio. They will be shutting down pretty much their entire shortwave operation. In total, about 200 transmissions will be going off the air. They will be discontinuing approximately 45 transmitters, which is huge for a shortwave operation. Huge. Uh, This is a massive international broadcaster. They've been on the air since the 1930s. They will be shutting down their external service, as well as their domestic broadcast. Uh, Because, I mean, they, they said, well, we do not feel that shortwave is reaching enough people to justify the costs we put into all of these, uh, these transmissions, which is a huge amount of resources uh, both physical and, of course, financial. They believe that shortwave broadcasting is expensive and does not reach an audience. 
there's a little bit of a conflict because the organization that wants to shut down the All India Radio shortwave broadcasts is called Prashar Bharti, and they are the parent body of state-owned broadcasters in India. They appointed a committee to take a look at All India Radio's shortwave transmissions, gauge the effectiveness, and then do what they see would be the best course of action. And they've recommended closing 45 of the existing 48 transmitters, again on the grounds that they are expensive and don't really have any audience. Now, currently, All India Radio has news broadcasts and programs in 28 languages, including Chinese, Dari, Burmese, Arabic, Swahili, English, and many other languages. They reach about 108 countries, including some of the immediate neighbors where shortwave may be dependent, uh, such as Pakistan, China, Myanmar, Indonesia, Ethiopia, and Nigeria. The CEO of Prashar Bharti had some comments on shortwave. He said, when it comes down to global outreach, digital is the way forward. We are working to revamp our apps, uh, such as the ARR World Service and News on All India Radio. Uh, We are also going to put more of a focus on international content to put forth India's perspective to a global audience. In terms of global opinion-making, shortwave transmissions hardly have any impact anymore. They said, while we are not phasing them out completely, the focus of external broadcasts will now shift to digital from shortwave. When asked if digital will have the same reach as shortwave, they said that while they really don't doubt the reach of shortwave transmitters and their strategic importance, most of India's shortwave transmitters are now defunct. I quote, There is no record on their listenership, too. Instead, the FM transmitters network will be strengthened at the sensitive borders, and more AM transmitters will be installed, In India, the Ministry of External Affairs uh, begs to differ. They disagree with this assessment. Uh, They said that they were concerned about the reports of shortwave transmitters being shut down, uh, stating that the most important tool of public diplomacy is airwaves as opposed to social media and other mediums. Uh, They further wrote that feedback from Indian missions abroad indicated that countries successful in their outreach had relied on traditional shortwave broadcasts. They also cited the example of the Voice of America, BBC World Service, Deutsche Welle, and the China Radio International as those that have successfully achieved a large global footprint while broadcasting on a shortwave. So here are my thoughts with this, because on a personal note, it's disappointing. Look, it's it's sad. All right, if you've listened to this show, you know that while I like shortwave, I listen to it daily. Heck, I broadcast on shortwave. I keep a realistic viewpoint of the medium. It's dying. And uh, it's, on a, it's on a one-way street. It's not going to turn itself around unless a cataclysmic event happens. And look, I, would, I do not want to see that to happen, even if it means shortwave would be revitalized. Never. You know, we, we do not want something so bad that people would be dependent once again, once again on shortwave. We never want to see that happen. So I have a realistic view of the medium. All right, I mean, I say this as a broadcaster. 
yes, the audience that Shortwave has exclusively isn't as sizable as it once was. Now, from a financial viewpoint, I completely get it. I understand where All India Radio is coming from. Recently, I had to discontinue a few broadcasts due to lack of listenership, and sometimes it's disappointing to see that when the plug is pulled and not a single person really notice, and that's it. So I understand where they're coming from. In my opinion, though, what All India Radio needs to do, they need to look at the correspondence that comes in, right? Because, yes, there is no way of, of knowing who is listening I, you know, I understand that too. But they need to look and they need to say, all right, well, how many reports on average are these broadcasts getting? And you have to extrapolate. That's not the most accurate way of doing things, but that's all you can do. So, for instance, if they have a shortwave transmission to Pakistan and it's getting dozens and dozens of, of letters and pieces of feedback and they're listening on shortwave, okay, well... Maybe we should keep that broadcast. But if there's a broadcast that's really high power, sometimes they'll use 500 kilowatts, which is a huge amount of electricity. It's being broadcast to Europe, and they're getting maybe one email a day. And it's costing them millions of dollars each year for one email. And then discontinue it. Pull the plug. They need to manage it intelligently and effectively. You know, they said... They're going to be discontinuing all but three transmitters. So that means, all right, they can still have that ability to broadcast three shortwave transmissions at any given time. So they need to prioritize. All right, cut the broadcasts to Europe. Cut the broadcasts to Australia. And even cut some of the broadcasts to the Middle East. With the three transmissions that they would have, I would reserve one broadcast to Africa, one broadcast to Southeast Asia, and then one to Pakistan and Afghanistan, uh, because those are areas of the world where shortwave will still have that audience and center them there. Will people in the areas that will no longer be targeted be disappointed? Yes. I would listen to them sometimes here in North America. I would be disappointed, but I would rather see them on a very limited basis than not at all. I'm disappointed in these cuts. I don't want to see them happen, but it is what it is. It's not really known when these will go into effect. So if you ever want to listen to all India radio on the shortwave, uh, India's external voice to the world, they do not target North America so you might be lucky and you might hear a few of their broadcasts to Europe, uh, try and listen in. The frequency that's best is usually 9445 kilohertz in the late afternoon, Eastern time. And uh, eh, tune in every so often and enjoy it before it's gone, because I can guarantee you if they will make these cuts, the broadcasts to Europe are going to be gone. Uh, that's, that's all I can really see, you know, happening at this point. So... It looks like they have their mind made up. Enjoy it while it's there. And if a date is set for all shortwave listeners, I will keep you updated. Any comments from uh, anyone who has anything to say about that? V-O-R-W-I-N-F-O at gmail.com. Now, before we get into the travel-related stories, 
Uh, just a short question to any people who happen to have ornithological interests, if you're interested in birds, that is. Are blue jays, you know, are they uh, omnivores? Because the other day I was looking out in the yard, and uh, there were some birds doing doing their thing, you know, snacking away at some bird seed and so forth. And there was this bird that died, and its carcass was lying there, and this blue jay comes along and starts picking at it. I thought to myself, that's the weirdest thing, you know, I've never seen a bird like that. You know, sometimes you'll have these more predatory birds, such as a hawk or a falcon, that will go about and they will eat the smaller birds, of course. But, you know, you almost, you never see like a morning dove or a sparrow or a cardinal or a red-winged blackbird or a woodpecker. You know, you never really see them eating each other. Maybe they have those appetites, but it's something that I've not seen anyway. So to see this blue jay eating this other bird uh, was kind of odd. And uh, it was very obviously dead. And it was a good-sized bird, and it was picking at it, you know. You know you know the deal. It was the whole nine yards. And uh, all the other birds were kind of just looking at it, like it was just really messed up. And uh, that makes me wonder, I mean, are blue jays omnivores? Do they have a tendency to eat other birds? Or is this like a one-off deranged blue jay that maybe snacked up on some bath salts and is, you know, going crazy? So if anyone feels qualified to answer, email address, as always, v-o-r-w-i-n-f-o at gmail.com. So this is VORW International, the voice of the Report of the Week. We are entering the second half of the broadcast, so stay tuned. We're going to be getting into the interactive side of the show. Uh, We have a good amount of your travel-related stories to uh, read. And then we have a good amount of uh, listener topic suggestions that will be coming in as well. So stay tuned. We have some good stuff coming your way. Of course, the address for any and all correspondence is always open, always welcome, v-o-r-w-i-n-f-o at gmail.com. Now, we have a lot to get to in this part of the show. Uh, We do have lots of the travel-related stories, and then we have lots of the topic suggestions. So first things first. This time around, I'm going to ask the question of the show. Right now, I'm going to do it now. And then we'll just get on to everything else. Now, this is a philosophical question. Last week was more of like a, you know, an open-ended thing. This one is still open-ended, but it's along more of that philosophical route. And it's an interesting one. I think it's something that maybe we've kind of mulled over in our heads one time or another. Maybe, maybe not. But I think it's relevant anyway to today's world in one way or another. Here's the question. Do we control technology, or is technology controlling us? I'll repeat it again. Do we control technology, or is technology controlling us? Which one is it? Is it one or the other? Is it a bit of both? Because, theoretically, right, we make technology. We, in a way, 
are in control of the internet. Though so many things at this point are controlled by algorithms that really are out of our control. And technology in and of itself. So many of us are dependent on it. We're dependent on the internet. We're dependent on our phones, our devices. Without them, so many people would be going crazy. So at this point in time, what do you think it is? Do we control technology, or is technology controlling us? I'd love to hear from you, whatever your thoughts are, whatever they might be. Send me an email with your answer. Please keep in mind, email is the only way to get on the show. Sometimes you'll have people that'll comment or try and message me via other means. Email is the only way. V-O-R-W-I-N-F-O at gmail.com is the address for your responses. We'd love to hear from you. We will be getting to them next week. Now, what we're going to be getting to now are the responses to last week's question or inquiry, which was really, if you have any travel-related experiences, uh, share them. So we have a good amount coming up. Okay, so the first travel story comes from Phil, uh, who's writing in from the South Shore, Massachusetts. A recent travel story I have is my trip to Chicago last October. My reason for going was that my girlfriend went to school there and wanted to catch up with old classmates, and my best friend had been living there for several years now. I'm not the biggest fan of flying, but taking JetBlue from Boston to O'Hare was actually pretty enjoyable and overall uneventful. I highly recommend it to anyone that has never been, although I only spent a weekend there, I could have easily spent an entire week exploring fantastic food, museums, and natural splendors. Unfortunately, I think, among many non-residents of Chicago, the city gets a bad rap for high levels of crime. Those are not unwarranted or unfounded facts. However, from my experience visiting, if you use basic common sense of your surroundings and trust your instincts in the neighborhoods you are in, you will be just as safe as any traveler in any other American city. So that was from Phil in uh, Massachusetts there. And uh, Chicago. You know, I was in Chicago back in 2011. It wasn't for the longest time. It was just for a few days. But, you know, it's a nice city. And I was there at the art museum. And uh, it was just a nice... It was a nice city. Now, Chicago does have a bad rap, like you said, in regards to crime. Now, you think it's something that's been on the increase in recent years. You know, just the amount of gang violence and so on. And every city has its good neighborhoods and its bad neighborhoods. You know, every city does. Every city. New York City, Orlando, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Chicago, Detroit. But sometimes I think people just focus exclusively on the negatives and therefore assume that the entire city is like an, a war zone, when that is just not the case. Like you said, look, it absolutely has its bad areas. That's, that's a fact. We, we all know that. But if you use common sense, it's not like it's a complete war zone and there's stray bullets flying around everywhere, you know? You're going to make it in and out in one piece and have a fun time, too. All right, uh, next we hear from Steve over in Cleveland, Ohio. He said, I am a Hawking College graduate in my second year of my ecotourism and adventure travel degree. 
Me and eight other students went to Andros Island, the Bahamas. It was a trip of a lifetime, but that's another story. We all met in Fort Lauderdale at the La Quinta Inn, and the next morning we went to the airport. It was more of an airport hangar, massive warehouse with small planes inside. They weighed our bags, all of which were required to weigh 50 pounds or less. I don't recall there being much security. Uh, There was definitely no TSA. The pilot and co-pilot loaded the plane with luggage in bizarre places, including compartments in the nose of the plane. We got in the small plane. I believe it only seated 12 people, including the pilots. The inside wasn't the cleanest. It had different colors of steel and what looked like tape on the inside. There was quite a bit of turbulence, and I was nervous, uh, to say the least. But it was a beautiful flight with the bright blue ocean waters and the islands, uh, with my classmates, including some of my best friends here. We arrived at the Bahamas airport, where the officials with the dark green uniforms are very friendly. I got my first stamp on my passport and felt accomplished. The, the small planes, it's its always funny how some of them can like be in really good condition. Some of them can be in awful shape. In Hawaii, when I was there in 2014, I did have the chance to ride one of those, like you said, smaller planes that maybe fits like a dozen people. But it seemed, just just hearing what you were saying, it seems like that plane I was in was in better shape than yours. But I'm glad that you made it through in one piece, and they were able to get to your destination safe and sound. Andrea, in Mexico City, uh, she says, My story takes place at the Miami International Airport. My mom and I were celebrating my quinceanera birthday. In case you're unfamiliar with this, it's a girl's 15th birthday, which is very important in Mexico. For some of us, for the occasion, we can decide whether we want to have a traditional party or if we want to travel. And ever since I was a little girl, I knew I wanted to go on a cruise with my mother. So we had a flight at Miami, but neither of us were very used to this. On previous flights, we had just always arrived directly to the destination, so we were trying to figure things out at this gigantic airport that also had this inner transportation to get you to hundreds of different gates and waiting rooms, so naturally we were lost. Uh, We were terrified to lose our flight, and after asking for directions every now and then, we managed to arrive at the corresponding waiting room, only to find it empty. Everyone else had already boarded the plane, and the gates were closed. My mother and I were almost panicking as we rushed to the front desks so we can fix things out. A mean-looking woman glared at us and got visibly annoyed by our situation, insisting that there was nothing to be done, that we missed the flight and that our seats were already taken. We were practically begging at this point and caught the attention of another employee. He asked kindly about our situation, and when we explained everything, he checked on the computer and said, Well, I have some great news for you. We do have seats available. The woman was incredulous and replied that the only seats left were the ones in first class. Uh, The man simply said, Yes, I know. Those are the ones they'll be getting with no extra charge. We thanked him again and again, but in response, he just wished me a happy birthday with a warm smile. And so that was the first and only time I have ever traveled in first class, and even though it was only a 40-minute flight, it was definitely the most significant one I've ever had.
airports are a, uh, they're, they're, a com- they're a complicated and very often confusing place. The Orlando International Airport is very similar in that it has you know, so many different gates and waiting rooms and terminals, and you really just, if you, if you aren't familiar with the layout, it's very easy to get lost at that place. So I will always look at the map, and I will always try and figure out which gate I need to get to, how I can get there as fast as possible. And I always try to give myself sufficient time. Because, you know, and you guys got lucky that the uh, employees at the gate there were nice. And I think it comes down to who is really working there, even if you miss the flight. Uh, like, for instance, if that one guy wasn't there, you, you guys would have missed the flight, uh, no doubt about it. You would have had to reschedule, maybe even pay a late fee. I mean, who knows? And, of course, your travel plans would be disrupted. Uh, But you were able to get a nice worker there who actually gave you guys the first-class seats, which is is crazy. But I I hope it was an enjoyable experience, nonetheless. I've missed flights before, and you just have to deal with it. You know, there there are ways to do it, but it's, it's annoying sometimes when you have these travel plans that are made with the assumption that you'll be getting to the the airport on time and that you'll be getting on the correct plane and so on and so forth. But it can be annoying. I'm glad you guys made it, though. Uh, Jason, checking in. I flew from North Dakota to Michigan last year, and mid-flight we saw a fight on the plane. A man sitting a few rows up from my wife and I had a child kicking his seat and yelling behind him. Oh, no. He got up and yelled at the little girl, uh, and then the girl's dad got angry. So the two got up, started yelling and shoving each other, until a couple of flight attendants broke it up and moved the man to the back of the plane. Made for quite an experience. Thank you, Jason. Boy, what a tough situation. I mean, I think everyone might be a little guilty in that circumstance. Definitely the one guy, of course, for getting up and yelling and instigating something. He overreacted. Uh, But at the same time, I think the kid's parents should have been more apt to, you know, tell their kid not to kick the the seat in front of them. I mean, thankfully, I've never had any experiences like that, though there have been times where, you know, there's a crying baby in the seat right behind me, just, I mean, screaming its lungs out. And I just try to ignore it, you know, I usually bring some headphones, so I just put some music on to try and just block it out. And I figure, well, this flight isn't going to last forever. It's not going to be the end of the world, though. Sometimes it always does amaze me how a how a baby can make so much noise without actually just getting burned out, you know? But wow, I, I can't believe that it actually ended up in a fight over such a thing. But, I mean, goes to show that can really... It can get on people's nerves, you know? It's, I think that's what it all comes down to. Fabrizio from Argentina is our next correspondent. As for traveling experiences, sadly I do not have many, but I do remember on one occasion I got to sit with a deaf person, and as ironic as it may sound, it had one of the... It was one of the most interesting conversations I've ever had. We didn't speak all that much, but I like to make some chit-chat in flights, or else I get bored really easily, so we talked on our phones, as in, typed something, showed it to him, and he responded on his phone, and so on. I think that's really neat that you're able to converse with someone in that way. 
And, uh, you know, when it comes down to making conversation on flights, like, I'm a very quiet person, so I'm fine just sitting there not saying anything. I think it all comes down to just taking a look at the person who's next to you, seeing what kind of mood they're in, and uh, seeing if they might even be up for conversation or not. But I think that was really cool. Thank you for sharing your experience there. Uh, Next, let's see who else is uh, writing in. Let me clear this message. And now let's go back to the list here. Uh, Hello, John. My name is Joshua, and I want to share this story with you. Back in 2017, June of that year, I took a flight from Houston to Los Angeles, and there was an incident that I can't get off my mind. I was flying with Southwest Airlines, and I was sitting in a coach seat at the back of the plane. As food and drinks were being served, the person who was sitting in front of me was very impatient on getting food and alcohol served to him. He would raise his voice a little bit from time to time just to get served, and it was making me and the other passengers around me feel very uncomfortable. I don't know if he was aware that the passengers in front of him get served first by these stewardesses, based on how much they pay for their seats. Finally, one of these stewardesses had to explain to the gentleman how the process works on being served, that he needed to remain calm, and that he would be served in a few minutes. He shook his head in disgust, and yet the stewardess remained calm. When it was finally time for him to be served, he just said, It's about time. Uh, My mood went from being uncomfortable to very stressed, as if I couldn't wait to land in Los Angeles to get away from this very rude passenger. I couldn't eat or drink anything uh, when it was my time to being served. Due to the stress from the rude gentleman in front of me, I felt like all people and all people want in a flight is to get to their destination safely without any drama. I just hope that no one else goes through the bad experience I had. I wish that some people would be more patient when it comes down to being served from their stewardess. Well, thank you, Joshua. I think that's more, uh, that's a commentary on human nature, and unfortunately, I think there are more people than I wish there were that have that attitude when it comes down to things. I mean, people like him may very well have an understanding of how things work. You know, they might might know that, yeah, the people in front of me get served first, I get it, but forget that. I want to get first, I want it now, you know. It's a very, in my opinion, narcissistic, self-centered attitude. I only care about me, what I get, I, I care not one bit about anyone else on the plane or what anyone else is going through or dealing with. I just want my food. I want my booze. I don't care about you, you know? That's what it really, that's what it seems like to me. And it's a shame, but I think there are a lot of people out there. And I mean, sometimes you will see extreme examples of that where the person won't just have a bad attitude and make snide remarks, uh, but they'll get physically aggressive Literally just because some menial little thing, like getting their food, right? He's not on the brink of death. He's not going to starve. Yet they they sometimes get, of course, very verbally aggressive and confrontational. Sometimes they'll get physical. All because they couldn't get their little snack quick enough. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. uh, But it's something that you see all too common, if you ask me. Um, Let's see who else we have. Anonymous listener writing in. Hey, writing in again. I wanted to send an answer 
your way about travel experiences. This might be a little outside the scope of the question, the question, but I ride our citywide train system, MARTA, that's M-A-R-T-A, here in Atlanta every day to and from work. I think it's one of the most interesting ways to travel. All sorts of people ride the train, and you never really know what you'll see when you get on. Just this week, I got to witness the arrest of a belligerent passenger, a screaming match between two different passengers, an amateur dance troupe putting on a performance on a moving train car that involved a backflip, and a guy prophesying the end of the world. Our train system is probably one of the worst in the country as far as reliability and service goes, but I do enjoy all the weird dramas and comedies I get to see while riding, and it sure as hell beats taking the interstate. Thank you for writing in. And, uh, you know, I I agree. I I really do agree with, with your comments there. I think things like that, in my opinion, give a city its character. It might not be posh or upscale or refined or any of that, but I think that variety... That diversity and that uncertainty of what you're going to see day to day, I don't know, I think that's just, that's one of the qualities of being in a city, you know? You just, you never know what you're going to get. And I always, I always like that, you know? Because it's real. That's the thing. It's real. And uh, I just, I just, I've always, I've always been a fan of that stuff, you know? I think you know what I'm, what I'm getting at there. So thank you for sharing that. And, uh... I'm glad, I'm glad, you know, even though the public transportation system is lacking, at least it still gets you from point A to point B. So, uh, you know, it does its job, at least. Might not be the smoothest, but at least to have a little bit of entertainment pretty much guaranteed every day. Uh, Claire is checking in. She says, I have a story regarding travel with a bit of a lesson. It's the summer of 2017, and it's on a hot day in a rural town in Ohio. I just recently sold a set of hefty Dungeons and Dragons books online, and they were ready to be taken to the post office. I had decided to borrow my mother's bike for the trip into town, and so I took to the back road of my town so as to avoid traffic. This was a bike that had been ridden half a dozen times in the previous 15 years, and it had not been maintained very well. Despite the state of the vehicle, I was able to use the back road and reach the post office without incident, having saved myself the much sweat and energy in expediting my travel. Well, the trip back, however, was a different story entirely. As I re-entered the back road, I encountered a strange bump, jumped off the bike unscathed. Now, the bike seemed undamaged, so as I hopped back on my mother's bike, I was immediately dumbfounded, to find that the handlebars had completely disconnected from the front wheel, making it impossible to steer. I was able to stop before I ended up in a crash, but I had to get off and push it all the way back home, readjusting the front wheel with every two steps. I want everyone to be aware that it is of paramount importance to properly maintain your bicycle if you ever intend to ride it. They are elegant machines, but they will betray you, if left in a shed with over a decade of neglect. So thank you for sharing your story. Sometimes I'll see these videos online, uh, like of someone, not even BMX, you know, it's just amateur stuff, someone riding their bike around in a parking lot or something, 
And I imagine it's kind of the same circumstance. It's just not the best maintained bike in the world. And they'll hit the curb or go over a bump or something. And all of a sudden, like you said, either the handlebars will come off. Or even in the more severe circumstances, the entire front wheel will just detach somehow. And it'll be inoperable completely. And I think, like you said, you just have to make sure you give it some use. And make sure it's in good shape as well. You know, that it's just taken care of, that it's probably well-oiled, maintained here and there. It doesn't need to be in perfect quality, I imagine, but it needs to be in working order. Our final travel story comes from Cal in San Francisco, California. He says, So last September I was traveling from San Francisco to Geneva, Switzerland, to be with my significant other for a month. And let me tell you, The whole experience of getting there was one of the scariest travel experiences I've ever had in my life. Getting on the plane was a normal experience, but the trouble started when we were about to take off. The cargo bay door wouldn't latch closed for some reason, requiring the plane to be grounded for an extra hour and a half while technicians came and tried to fix it. Right away it was a little scary since I'm not used to having issues on flights, and as a very anxious person, I naturally let my mind get the best of me. You might know how it goes. When you're anxious like that, every weird or sudden noise the plane makes can make you very anxious at the moment. Alright, eventually the problem was fixed, and the plane ended up taking off. About 20 minutes into the flight was where it really got terrifying. I was seated near the back of the plane, and out of nowhere, someone ahead of me started screaming. The engine is smoking. I think the engine is on fire. Sure enough, looking out the window across from me, I saw a thin, continuous, white trail of smoke. It was a heart-sinking and terrifying moment. Never in my life have I ever been so sure I was about to die. People were freaking out. Most of the people were overwhelmed and hectic, crying or praying. There was such a deep, morbid, overwhelming and overlying dread in the air. It's just so hard to describe even now. About a minute after the smoke was noticed, the pilot came over the intercom, uh, told us to stay calm, and that there was an engine malfunction requiring us to make an emergency landing at the nearest airport. Now, luckily, the airport was only 10 minutes away, but each minute felt like an hour. To cut the story short, we eventually did end up landing safely, at which point some people were crying out of happiness, myself included. It was such an, an emotional experience. A lot of us ended up hugging and thanking the pilots. During the whole emergency flight back and landing, I was gripping my arm so hard that my fingernails dug into it, uh, though I didn't even realize until afterwards. I understand that the pilots are trained for situations like this, but I still felt we were incredibly lucky to have pilots who were able to stay calm and collected, and who tried to keep the passengers and flight attendants grounded. I have a lot of respect for them, since they have to keep flying and doing their job after a situation like that. But for me, since it happened so recently, I'm still terrified of flying, whereas I wasn't before. Statistically, I understand that flying is safer than most other forms of travel, but a situation like that will really screw someone up. Anyway... I'm glad everyone got off the flight safely, and that I'm still here to tell the tale. I'm only 23, it was a real eye-opener to realize I can die this early in my life. 
Hope I didn't bring the mood down too much after all. Everyone ended up okay and all is well now. Thanks for listening to my story and hope you have a great night or day, but I know you're nocturnal like me. Yes, it is. It is the nighttime right now. And thank you for your story, Cal. Uh, what, I mean, what a, what a story right there. And I'm glad you made it out in one piece, you know, because you are right. Flying statistically, and let me get the statistics up right now, actually. I mean, that must have been absolutely terrifying. But, you know, flying in a commercial airplane is one of the safest things you can do. And I think that experience, as harrowing as it was, goes to show it. That despite there being that technical issue, it was handled by professionals who knew what they were doing and were able to competently get you guys safe get the plane on the ground without any injuries. I mean, for instance, here are just a few of the the odds of dying, right? And these are from the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and the University of California at Berkeley. So some, you know, reputable sources anyway. Odds of dying. Cardiovascular disease, one in two odds. Smoking by or before age 35, 1 in 600. A road trip coast to coast, 1 in 14,000. 1 in 14,000, that's it. Bike accident, 1 in 88,000. Tornado, 1 in 450,000. Train ride coast to coast, 1 in a million. Struck by lightning, 1 in 2 million. Getting stung by a bee, 1 in 5.5 million, and then in a U.S. commercial jet airline, 1 in 7 million. So you have a greater chance of getting stung by a bee and getting killed by that than dying in a plane crash. Or even just by driving. I mean, look at the odds. Getting killed in a car accident coast to coast, 1 in 14,000 chance. Dying in a plane crash, one in seven million chance. I mean, I think there was even in this info I don't have directly in front of me, but I believe it said that if in order to fly enough statistically for a plane crash to happen, you would have to get on a flight every single day for 14,000 years. You know, it was something to that extent anyway. It was just this inordinate amount of time. That was just, you know, so unrealistic that it would not happen. But I think nonetheless, what kind of gives us this fear is when we are in a plane, you know, we have no control over the environment. We are, in the most literal sense, there for the ride. And with that, we know that if it's going to go down, there's a chance that we're not really going to make it. Again, because we have no control over it at all. One other thing that I do sometimes is, before I fly, I look at this one website, I think it's called Flight Radar 24, and it shows every single plane that has its transponder on in the entire world flying around. You know, you see thousands and thousands and thousands of planes flying around. And every single one of them took off fine, and it's going to land fine, too. I just tell myself, look, the pilots know what they're doing, especially now that I'm not flying with Allegiant Airlines anymore, that 
the plane is in good condition, that there are so many procedures in case something happens that they can be able to touch down and make an emergency landing, especially since I'm flying over uh, the U.S. and not over the middle of the ocean so that they can find an airport to make that landing at. And that, you know, 9.999 times out of 10, everything is going to be fine. Everything will be all right. And that's it. And look, if something happens, it happens. I never had any control over that to begin with. But I'm just, I'm always, I always try to be very confident that everything will be good and I'll be making it out in one piece. All right, so uh, next up we have our topic suggestions. And we have a good variety coming in. Uh, of course, if you have any topic suggestions, be great to hear from you. Send me an email, V-O-R-W-I-N-F-O at gmail.com. If you're listening in right now, say hello. Uh, that's the only way that I know people are even tuned in. What your thoughts on the show are. Uh, if you're listening in on shortwave, let me know reception. And uh, just say hello. Let me know you're tuned in. V-O-R-W-I-N-F-O at gmail.com. Likewise, if you have a topic you'd like to suggest... That's the email address to submit one. Uh, Of course, it's guaranteed that I will not always be able to talk about it, but if you do not submit it, there is likely no chance at all that it will be brought up. So just shout it out. Let me know what you want want to hear my thoughts on. And uh, there we go. All right, so uh, we have a good amount, and uh, let's just get to them. First, we have Naomi in France. I remember you talking about the existence of aliens on the podcast, saying you believe they exist. Like many, I was fully convinced that they had to exist, too. But the more I research and think about it, the less confident I am in that conviction. It all started with the Fermi Paradox. In 1950, the the physicist Fermi asked the question, quote, If alien civilization exists, they should have long arrived here. Where are they? Unquote. This led to scientists trying to estimate the number of probable alien life in the universe. Now, I will not bore you with the exact mathematics behind it, but to make it simple, there is no maths behind it. Astrophysicist Frank Drake came up with the now infamous Drake equation, an extremely simple equation that holds no scientific value. Drake did not attempt to actually solve this problem. His goal was to inspire dialogue. Uh, Four of the seven factors that play into the equation are completely unknown, and basically any value could be correct or false. Using the Drake equation, estimates for the number of alien population in the universe range from 100 million to zero, none of the estimates being favored. To sum it up, we know nothing. But we do know more than we did 70 years ago. Despite scouring our our galaxy for decades, we have not found the tiniest trace of life. Nothing. If there was ever a civilization in our galaxy, we should see something. Therefore, many scientists are inclined to believe that we might indeed be alone. So thank you for your perspective, Naomi. And uh, it's interesting. Interesting food for thought. Until any contact would be made or any conclusive proof, uh, you know, right now, I mean, you know, theoretically... We, we, would, we would be alone. Personally, do I think that alien life exists? I think so. I, th- I think it has to. However, in regards to the rarity thereof, it could be exceptionally rare. Uh, 
I mean, here's what it comes down to, right? In regards to the universe, I think that our knowledge and understanding of it is more vague than we will ever realize. I think that there are so many different things about this that we we know nothing about, we don't even know exists. I mean, look, there could very well be life out there that transcends dimensions. Could nearly be, you know, on the 4D perspective, they can see us, we can't see them. And likewise, our own understanding of the, you know, building blocks of life, what we perceive as being the, the essential qualities for life to exist, what if that knowledge is completely wrong? I mean, of course, it applies on Earth, but what if that's not true anywhere else? What if there are creatures that can survive just in the void of space? We have our knowledge. We believe that's not possible. What if it is? What do we know? I think that life is out there, but it may very well be less numerous than we thought. You know, there's an interesting thing I read yesterday that almost does go, at least it gives, it gives credibility to your viewpoint. The first article I see, there are many others, of course, from USA Today, says, and this was literally published yesterday, maybe we are alone after all. Planets that could sustain alien life much rarer than we thought. And essentially just what it comes down to say, of course, in the search for extraterrestrial life, the believed habitable zone in solar systems uh, where liquid water could exist on a planet's surface is nowhere near as common as we once thought. Because while it may have water, it's believed that anyway, the chemical composition of the planet's atmosphere would still be extremely hostile uh, for any complex life, anything more than single-celled organisms to be able to survive. So it just goes to show, I mean, what if we are literally the only ones in the entire universe? You know, either way, it's... When you, when you look at the universe, I think no matter what, no matter what you believe or you don't believe, it's a fascinating, fascinating thing to just see all that there is out there. And I think no matter what, look, whether we are the only ones in the entire universe, which would be insane, but if for some, if, if we are the only living things in the universe, or whether we aren't, I think just going to see how rare a planet like Earth is. The fact that it has these qualities that are so... You know, we're struggling to find any other planets that are just like Earth, that have all of the matching qualities. Every other planet seems to have one issue or the next, or, you know, always has those variances and, and differences that have those limiting, limiting factors. As a result, I think it should just inspire more appreciation to this planet, in everyone, you know, to realize that what we have right here is so beautiful and so rare, we should treat it with a little more respect and not keep destroying it with pollution and all of that, you know? Such a rare, beautiful thing, and here we are squandering it. So anyway, thank you for bringing that up. Going over to a health-related question, Branson is checking in. Uh, I know not by any means that you're a doctor, but I happen to notice that you have a very clean face, free of acne. If you could shed maybe some light onto the topic, it would be much appreciated. Well, thank you for your question. I still have breakouts, of course. I still I still get breakouts all the time. And uh, it might not be 
to the point where it's really noticeable, but I still get pimples, you know? I think, I think pretty much everyone does. And to tell you the truth, I had really bad breakouts for a while. I, I did. In uh, 2015, I changed up my skincare routine because I really wasn't doing a good job before that. And as a result from changing it up all of a sudden, that exfoliation really started getting the skin fired up, and I started getting bad breakouts. I mean, I'm talking everywhere. Uh, you know, on my forehead, on my chin, on the jawline, on the, the sides of my face, everywhere. Even on the sides of my nose, you name it. And it was just coming up everywhere. And uh, you could probably... I wasn't using the highest quality camera back in 2015, so you couldn't really see it too well, but I was really having bad breakouts. So I went to a dermatologist, and I was prescribed uh, doxycycline, which is a, uh, it's a prescription drug that it works. It clears it out. It's, you know, it's professional stuff. It's the real deal. One of the side effects is nausea, so just be aware of that. Uh, but then being supplemented with taking those pills every day for a couple months. I just tried to institute just a structured... A skincare routine, and really, as long as that is maintained, usually the skin ends up taking care of itself pretty well. And of course, just one over-the-counter uh, topical antiseptic you can get is benzoyl peroxide, uh, which, you know, Neutrogena or whatever brand, you know, you like, can give that a, a shot. You know, if you're trying everything, you're trying that, you're trying the skincare, you're trying to moderate your diet, but it's just not working out. See a dermatologist as a last resort. That's what I did. It was getting really bad. He prescribed me the doxycycline mono, I believe it was, and it worked. That's what really cleared it up, and years later, it's still, it's still doing good. It, it helps. really does. Thank you for your question. Uh, Cindy is checking in. I was wondering what your thoughts are on time travel. There are a multitude of videos on YouTube with interviews and other such content. Also, I appreciate your appearance and your ability to speak with such eloquence. Thank you for your kind words. And uh, time travel, I mean, like I was thinking before in regards to the universe, I think our scope of knowledge is so, so inconsistent. I mean, we really don't know much at all. And our entire knowledge of time may be, you know, it may not, it may not even be true. The only thing that I question in regards to time travel and its legitimacy is how would it be explained then, let's say if time travel was possible, then how is it that the world exists as it does right now? Like, for instance, I mean, you know that, let's say, you know, whatever, 50 years from now, time travel is possible. Even if there were regulations put on it, you better believe someone would go and travel back in time and uh, kill Hitler, you know, or something like that. You know someone would. Or someone would go and interfere with some major current event, do something stupid, or, you know. You know people would be doing that. So where are the consequences of that? Why aren't we seeing that? So that makes me wonder that if time travel is possible, or it one day will be, all I can figure is perhaps maybe it Somehow, if there are other dimensions or universes, if there are parallel universes, all I could think is 
in order to justify it without things being messed up so much in our universe, it would possibly be a way to kind of go into some sort of parallel reality, be able to run amok and then go back to the regular one, you know? It's a complex thing, but makes me wonder, maybe maybe it'll never be possible, maybe it is. Uh, I mean, who's to say, but it just makes me wonder those effects of it, why we really do not see them. So thank you for your topic. Uh, Nixon checking in, he says, I've been enjoying the broadcasts of VORW, I catch via YouTube, as usual, and I had a question regarding one of the topics mentioned. I heard that you... Uh, I've heard you talk about your trips to Pocono for the uh, Pocono 400 NASCAR race a few times now. I was wondering if you actively follow NASCAR or if you simply enjoy attending this one particular event. Uh, a little bit of both. I'm not the world's biggest NASCAR fan, though I do check in on it and see how you know my favorite drivers are doing. I've always been a Jimmy Johnson fan. I used to like, um, you know, Dale Earnhardt Jr., and uh, Jeff Gordon. The two of them are now retired, and I think they're doing broadcasting work. So, you know, I don't actively follow it to extremes, but I still check in on it, like I said. Uh, but going to the Pocono 400 is a tradition. It's it's something that I've been doing for 15 years now. And uh, it's just something that, you know, it's been going on so long, it's just, you know, it's a yearly tradition. It's something that, something that I do. So that's where that stands, and it's still a lot of fun. You know, it's a fun experience. And uh, that's where that stands. So thank you for your question, Nixon. Lots of uh, space-related questions, but it's it's nice. Uh, Jack is writing in. He says, I was wondering your thoughts were on space travel. I'm currently working on a spacecraft that will fly past several asteroids in the coming decades. Uh, the Lucy mission to asteroids near Jupiter. And it's a legitimate thing. It's uh, a mission that's being done by NASA that will be uh, doing kind of a flyby of these asteroids in the uh, in the 2020s. So uh, it's great to uh, great to hear from someone who who works with that, but he continues anyway. I was just curious uh, if you have seen a launch as you live in Florida and if you think space exploration is worth it uh, and on the recent private sector boom in the space market such as SpaceX, Virgin Galactic, etc. Thank you for writing in, Jack, and that's the great thing. You never know who you're going to reach. Um, I mean, I think it's something that more needs to be invested into. And I think what needs to be done is we need to focus on two things. We need to focus, I think, on development of, number one, better telescopes, better observation equipment. And number two, if it will ever be possible to travel at a speed faster than we currently are able to do so, because one of the only, either that or figure out how to realistically, you know, put uh, put people in, in stasis. But even then, in, in regards to time, I think if it was ever, you know, realistically discovered to be able to travel close, you know, to the speed of light, then of course that would make certain extents of uh, space travel more practical. Instead of taking, you know, 20,000 years to get somewhere, be more realistic in some ways anyway. But I think we need to put a lot more energy to it. And I think some people are going to be upset by this, but it's just my personal opinion. We need to forget about the moon at this point. Forget about it. It's, you know, that's what gets me. I see, I see more energy being put over to the space program, and then they want to go to the moon again. 
I, I, I don't know. I just, I think there's nothing of value there at all. If we want to focus our sights on something, make it Mars. The moon is, I just don't think it has any value at this point. We're already there. It's already known that the, the moon dust is uh, pretty much toxic, I'm pretty sure. Or something to that extent. It's damaging to us. It's already so close to the Earth to begin with. I don't think there's really much practicality to it. Um, I've seen a good number of launches. I've probably seen close to, I don't know, maybe 15 at this point. Uh, yes, I, I, see, I see a huge amount. I see the SpaceX ones. I see the NASA launches. Um, I saw the Falcon Heavy launches a, a couple times, I think maybe two times or, or so. And uh, yes, yes, I've seen many, many launches. And it's always, always so much fun to see. So uh, it's very pretty, very nice to see. There was one time I was actually outside recording one of these shows, and all of a sudden I hear this rumbling, and sure enough, there was just a rocket launch going on I wasn't even aware of it. So, uh, yes, it's happened before. And as for the private sector boom in the space market, I think it's absolutely necessary. Because to me, the space industry is such an important thing. To see it defunded and possibly die is so sad. So, if organizations like NASA get stripped of their funding, then it's only right that the private sector kind of carries the flame and, and keeps it going. So I wish that more energy to begin with was put toward NASA and all of that. But in the meantime, I think it's great to at least see some companies out there that are still passionate about this, that still care about it, put resources into it, and help keep it going, keep it alive, you know? So it's nice to see. I hope all these companies like uh, Blue Origin, uh, Virgin Galactic, SpaceX, uh, you know, are able to keep it going along with NASA. And I hope going forward we'll see some developments get made and uh, possibly some, you know, some new progress emerge. So thank you for your topic, Jack. To wrap the show up, we hear from Zach. And he says, I need some advice. I started dressing more formally like you do, and it makes me happy, but my parents and family think I'm weird, and sometimes they won't let me wear what I want to wear. I was wondering if this happened to you, and if you can give me some advice. Here's the thing, Zach. I mean, number one, once you're 18, wear what you want to wear. And if you want to wear a top hat, you can go for it, and, you know, no one can really do much. I mean, secondly, just know that they may have their objections, but dressing formally is one of the, I think, least offensive things you can possibly do. You know, it's not like you're wearing some t-shirt with some horribly profane message on it or anything offensive. If you want to just dress nicely, there's nothing wrong with that. But if people have their objections, they're allowed to think that, and you know, it's where it stands. When I first started dressing nicely, it was a very gradual change. Now, believe me, I really wanted to just jump right into wearing, you know, a full three-piece suit every day. But I didn't do that. I bought a few suits, and I'd wear them from time to time. But it started off small. Where first, I stopped wearing shorts, and, uh... Now, look, this is a very harsh example. Don't take it word for word, but this is just what I did, and what I was looking for. You know... Just take it at that. I'm just trying to prove a point about a smooth transition, that's all. 
So first I stopped wearing jeans and uh, shorts. And I just started wearing khakis. You know, khakis and a few pairs of uh, slacks and dress pants. Uh, you know, with like polo shirts and maybe a button-down shirt. Then, after a little bit, I started tucking the shirts in. Right? There's a big step. Kind of makes the outfit a bit more formal. Make sure the footwear is a little nicer. Uh, then, you know, switch from polo and button-down shirts to dress shirts. Still tucked in, not a big change, right? Looks a little nicer. Then from that, every so often, wear a tie. Wear a tie with the shirt, not always, but start incorporating ties into your wardrobe more and more often. Then once you're comfortable with that, then start adding accessories. Uh, wear a vest, wear a sweater. Start out with a sport coat, because that's a little more uh, informal. Once you make the step to wearing a sport jacket, then you're pretty much good to go with suits. Then once you're wearing sport coats, then put on a full suit. And then once you start familiarizing yourself with suits, then if you want to add anything more, if you want to go with a vest or a hat or something, then go with that. And if done, it, it can be a very gradual transition that those who are around you pretty much won't even notice it. It'll take, you know, some time, but... It's a gradual thing, and you're working your way up, so everyone is familiar with that. When I was starting to dress nicely, uh, this was done when I was in high school, so you could imagine that kind of environment. If all of a sudden I started wearing a full three-piece suit one day, everyone would notice, you know? Everyone would be looking at you and, <laughs> Ooh, what are you wearing? Why are you wearing that? You know, and so on. But that's what I did. I just started doing it very gradually. So I just started wearing nicer pants, nicer shirts. By the time I started tucking all the shirts in, no one even batted an eye. You know, no one even noticed. By the time I was wearing the dress shirts, no one noticed. The first few times I put a tie on, a few people said something, but then I did it enough that everyone just, you know, yeah, that's just what you're wearing, you know? So already, right then, I was able to wear a tie every day without anyone even giving me any second thought. Then you give the accessories a shot, no one notices. Then when you start wearing suit jackets the first time, a few people will notice. But you do it enough, and that's just going to be your thing, you know, that's just what you wear. And then eventually I just started wearing a full suit every day. No one even noticed. That's just, you know, that's just what I was doing. That was just my thing. So the best thing to do is just go gradual. But if you just want to go all out, then just do it. But in regards to especially coming off better to others, and also feeling that, you know, self-conscious. If it's a gradual build-up, it could be over the span of a month, or a few weeks, or months, you know. Go with the speed you're comfortable going at. But if you do that, that's probably what'll work best. Now, once you're a full-blown adult, wear whatever you want to wear. Then just go with a full-blown three-piece suit every day, and uh, trust me, no one, no one is really going to say anything. You know, I really... I don't put any thought into what I wear anymore. I mean, I'm sitting here at, you know, 2.30 a.m. at the microphone here. I'm wearing a brown uh, single-breasted suit from the 80s. I think it's a Jones New York suit. Going with a white shirt, brown striped tie, you know, black shoes. Got my hair done. And then I might go out for a walk later, you know, in, in full regalia. But I don't put any thought into it. I'm just wearing what I wear every day. I'm not wearing a suit and going with this, you know, just wearing what I wear. 
to the point, I guess, where I've just been doing it for so long, you know, it's just second nature. All right, well, with that, I'm going to be wrapping up the broadcast today. This is VORW International, the voice of the Report of the Week. Remember, any questions, comments, feedbacks, or topic suggestions, V-O-R-W-I-N-F-O at gmail.com. Likewise, remember the question for today's show, do we control technology or does technology control us? Really good philosophical question. Looking forward to your responses. Same email address, V-O-R-W-I-N-F-O at gmail.com. Likewise, support the broadcast, help keep it going. Donations via PayPal are appreciated to V-O-R-W-I-N-F-O at gmail.com or via Patreon at patreon.com slash the report of the week. And finally, shortwave is on the decline. It's going downhill. I understand it. I accept it. But it is not dead yet. Shortwave still has a purpose, still has practicalities to it. It is still worth your time, effort, and attention. Get a shortwave radio. If you have any questions about the medium or getting a radio, send me an email to the usual address and check out my Amazon affiliate page, amazon.com slash shop slash the report of the week. Thank you for listening, and I hope you can tune in again next week. Until then, take care. This is VORW. Glowing Ice is a one-man music project that is best described as something called outcast pop. Pop music for unpopular people. Mixing distorted guitars, big electronic drums, synthesizers, and sound effects recorded from the real world, Glowing Ice's latest album, Sunshine Fun Time, is something to experience. The topics of the songs from Sunshine Fun Time range from The Afterlife, Gamer Girls, Songs on the Radio, Getting Married, and even Robbing a Bank. It's certainly out there, but with upbeat, playful EDM dance numbers like Eggplant Emoji, to the slow, thick synths and heavy industrial drums of slow motion in bed, there is something for everyone to enjoy. It's Sunshine Fun Time by Glowing Ice, available on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, and everywhere else. Music is sold and streamed online. We also have a message from Steve's Beef Jerky Company, so lend an ear. I've been developing this recipe since I attended high school. I'm currently 35 years of age, and I've come a long way. My family, friends, co-workers are always hitting me up for my jerky, and I even have trouble holding on to my personal stash. Now, I buy the reddest, leanest, and freshest meat that I can find. I slice it up in very thin slices, and I marinate it for three days in the secret recipe of marinade and seasonings. This jerky has a little sweetness and great Cajun flavor. It's slightly spicy, but if you could handle generic buffalo wings, then you can handle this jerky with no problems. Each package is vacuum-sealed and is never left out in the sun. The jerky is prepared in a clean, safe environment. My jerky is moist, and I try to slice it across the grain and thin as possible in order to make sure it is extremely tender. Brand name jerky is loaded with preservatives, which are also bad for you. Sodium nitrate and such are known to cause heart problems, and you have no idea what's in the stuff you're buying. Sometimes 
and that Frankenstein's monster of a product can be scary. Give my jerky a chance. Buy a pack or two, one for your lunchbox, another for a loved one who I'm sure will appreciate it. It's a very lean product, all fat is trimmed off during preparation, and it's a great source of protein. I'm looking at you, bodybuilders. If you'd like more information, please see my Facebook page at facebook.com slash stevesjerky. That's facebook.com slash s-t-e-v-e-s-j-e-r-k-y. Steve's Jerky at facebook.com.